And I'm Kat, and welcome to The Crime Chat. I am your forensic femme fatale, and Natalie is your true crime addict connoisseur. We're just two girls who literally ran out of giving a fuck. Yeah. We have zero fucks to give. Zero. <laughs> zero at this point. We are obsessed with dark crimes, evil minds, and occasionally the unknown. Yes, we are. And here's your disclaimer. The following crime chat contains adult content and descriptions of likely potentially violent scenarios. Your listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. Um, so before we get into this crime chat, Kat, have you done anything new and exciting over this last week? Um, I haven't seen necessarily done anything new and exciting unless you call drinking a new bottle of 19 crimes exciting. <sighs> so they just came out. For those chatters out there, episode one, we covered 19 crimes, right? I was at the store the other day, and I was just perusing the wine aisle, and I see no other than Martha Stewart on the cover Mm -hmm. of 19 Crimes. It's called Martha's Shard. It's a Chardonnay. So they do have a hard shard. This one's Mm -hmm. a little bit lighter. I would say a little bit sweeter. Very easy to drink. Um, So I did also the living wine label on it. And it just has basically her saying, um, talking a little bit about her cooking and some of that kind of stuff. Like, of course, I'm going to pair my whatever with my Chardonnay, you know, little things like that. (laughs) I was hoping it would go into a little bit more of like her embezzlement stuff. But Mm -hmm. uh, I just think that just means we need to do another 19 Crimes episode. We do. We do. She is she's notorious at this point. (laughs) She is. She really is. And I watched, there was a TikTok I was watching the other day that had, it was a clip from the Ellis DeGeneres show, and it had Martha mm-hmm. Stewart and Snoop Dogg. And, and Snoop Dogg also has his own, actually, he's got two bottles of 19 Crimes. And Snoop and Martha are very, like, good friends, which is crazy. Yeah. Like, you would not think, yeah. right? So, but then also there was a third guest, Anna Kendrick, whom I adore. I think she's great. So the three of them were doing this game of basically never have I ever. And we're like holding up these signs. It it was so Mm -hmm. cute. It was hilarious. But anyway, I saw that. And then the very next day I saw that Martha Shard. And I was like, I I see this as something that we need to do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We need to cover Martha Stewart. (laughs) And Snoop. And Snoop. Yes. We can call the episode BBF. Best friends. BFF. Right? BFF. BFFs. Best, best friends forever. Yes. In wine and crime. In wine. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, my God. Um, but other than that, so we started watching a new Netflix series called In the Cold. Or From the mm-hmm. from the Cold. Sorry. Have you heard of it? No. Okay. Or In From the Cold. Sorry. Yeah. In From the Cold. Who's in it? I don't really recognize, like, off the top of my head, any of the actors that are in it. However, mm-hmm. it's my other life, my spy life. Yeah. I was very intrigued by this. And it's about like Russian spies post-Cold War. 20 years later, uh, one of the most notorious Russian spies was found in just like regular mom life kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're only we started to watch episode three and I was like, you know what? I need to go to bed. Because I need to get up and go to work in the morning. <laughs> or else we would probably would have binge watched it the entire night. I imagine we'll binge watch it tomorrow. Well. Watch the rest of it. There's only like eight episodes. So it's yeah. a very short series. But I did see something in the news that they're actually already scheduled for season two. Oh, they are. Okay. Yeah. Good. I'll yeah. check it so out. So it's one of those that hooked people in. Mm-hmm. So in from the cold. I took your advice and I started watching uh, Shit's Creek. Yeah. Isn't I it great? It. I watched all six ep- uh, seasons so far in a week. Did you like it? I loved it. Did, so did you finish? I did. Are you sad that it's over? Yes, I am. I am. They hint- they ended it well, but yeah. the son is hilarious. I love him. Daniel the- Levy? Oh my God, he's great. And the, and the mother, when she yeah, when she's like, uh, I guess he's babysitting and she's like, the bebe. <laughs> but yeah, it's with the bebe. <laughs> like, so I think I told you I watched um, kind of a behind the scenes thing with that. And she, that actress who plays Mora, Mor- Moriah, I can never say her name. The mom. Mora. Isn't it Mora? Mora. Mor- M-O-R-I-A. Moria. I'm I good. can't say yeah, it. Anyway, 
So the mom, she mm. literally made up that accent for that show specifically. Yeah, I can see that. She's and brilliant. I, she is. I mean, of course, she was in um, – she was the same actress that was in Beetlejuice. Mm-hmm. Right? So she's been around for a minute. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> she's great. No, it's a great series. And actually, I was talking to my girlfriend about it today at work. She's like, I've watched it that's that whole show from – you know, binge watch the whole show like three times. And I'm like, we need to watch it again. That's a great show. I love it. I hope they do. Like they come back after a couple of years and they, you know, after like Dexter, like after 10 years, they yeah. had, they continued. Yeah. And then we can see like where the son's at with his husband. Mm-hmm. I do feel bad for the daughter that she didn't end up with that guy. The veterinarian, right? Yeah. Yeah. Ted, he's a cutie. He, is. he was hot. So do you know the... The girl that worked in the restaurant, or like she does like all the random jobs around town. That's Dan. That's Eugene Levy's actual daughter, Daniel Levy's sister. Wait a minute, Eugene, and he's the dad. Yeah, so Eugene Levy plays the dad. His real life son is Daniel Levy, mm-hmm. who plays the son. But his the sister is not the plays the sister in the series. She's the one that's like um works at the restaurant. Trixie. Oh, Tris- um, oh, oh, Twyla. And I- yes, that's a real life Eugene Levy's daughter and. Daniel Levy's sister. Oh my god, that's why there was so so much chemistry. It was great. Yeah, okay, well I know I, I haven't read your story. I haven't looked at the script. Yay! I'm coming into this one cold. Good. I have no idea. You told me not to Google. You told me not to peek. Yep. I behaved. Good. I followed I followed the instructions. Uh, you did tell me it was about lipstick, though. You mentioned lipstick in the title. so I, I did. Yeah, so because it is our second crime and cosmetic segment. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, so it is. It does have lipstick in the description. The title. That is correct. So, chatters, because I was flying blind this week, I decided just to take lipstick and give us a little bit of a history lesson in mm-hmm. what it's all about and what it's done. I mean, yes, it's pretty impressive. And then you'll tell us the dark side of lipstick. I think in all in all, um, it's a little bit of a stretch to be related to lipstick in a way. But the story actually behind it ties into uh, some JonBenet Ramsey stuff as well as posthumous pardoning potential. Really? Yes. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. So let's... But let's learn about lipstick Yay! first. Okay, so let me ask you a question. Uh, what does ancient Greek prostitutes and World War II soldiers have in common, Kat? <laughs> <laughs> well, I know um, just in general, and I, as for those watching in, on our video on Patreon, mm-hmm. I have my... I'm sporting my red lipstick today. You look gorgeous, by the way. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So do you. Oh, you look so you. <laughs> Um Well, you're... Ding, 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 ding. You're right. It's red lipstick. <gasps> Oh, okay. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> so it turns out that the iconic bold red lips have a surprising history in sex, power, and war. Yes, they do. And my very brief, and you could get into it, but my very brief, just off the top of my head knowledge mm-hmm. with the red lipstick does tie to World War II, and it was in support of the working women while their men were gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. Go. That's, that's a That's... Definitely, that's part of the history. Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In ancient Egypt, lipstick was worn by both men and women as a symbol of status and power. I think we went over this once before during the Aqua Tafana episode. We did. We t- we covered some of the ingredients of lipstick mm. and kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Cleopatra wore a shade of red that was made with a concoction of crushed inse- insects, fish scales, and beeswax. Mm-hmm. I don't, still don't understand how they come up with that shit. It's by accident. All the things that we have discovered has been like, oh, let's kind of see what this is. It's curious minds want to know. I understand beeswax, but how do you get to fish scales? Maybe the shimmer that they had. They liked the shimmer. and then. Ooh, that's true. Okay. I don't know. I know. Well, in ancient Greece, lipstick was less glamorous and helped separate society because it was seen as something used exclusively by prostitutes. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Uh, in fact, there was a law stating that prostitutes had to wear makeup in public as not to deceive men who were looking for real relationships. <laughs> I'm fake, just like the makeup <laughs> on my face. <laughs> oh, my God. It's crazy. 
Um, so fast forward to the Middle Ages, lip painting continued and caused some major controversies, of course, mm -hmm. um, mostly caused by criticism from the Catholic Church, mm -hmm. our friends of the Catholic Church. Uh, lipstick was portrayed as satanic. They basically said, mm -hmm. oh, no, you're Satan, you're temptress. Um, but Elizabeth I, who came into power in England in 1558, she fully embraced lipstick. She oh, did. Always wore it. I mean, yes. we should really do an episode on her. Yeah. She's she's a pretty, another iconic, like Martha Stewart. Yeah. And with, they should have her on a wine bottle. They should. Elizabeth oh. I. Maybe we can make that recommendation. Hey, 19 Crimes out there, if you're listening, uh -huh. we love you. Hi. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so she fully embraced wearing makeup in public and in private. She mm -hmm. thought that the, the red lip color contained mystical powers. And unfortunately the lead content in the lipstick is kind of what led to her death. So. Wow. I didn't know that, but didn't, purpose. I remember from the Aqua Tafana episode, you mentioned too, mm -hmm. that she had like the layers of lipstick, like there was she, like a, a quarter inch or something of lipstick that was actually mm -hmm. rouge that was on her face when mm -hmm. she passed. Yeah. Wow. So I'm thinking like back then it wasn't the lipstick that we know where it's smooth and silky and it goes on mm -hmm. with one coat. I'm thinking she had to pile that stuff on yes. like the the powder and the makeup and the wigs and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So lipstick's popularity started to fall over the next couple of centuries hitting a rock bottom during the Victoria era. See, I'm not that familiar during this Victorian era, are you? Do you no, know? Not Neither really, but it sounds like we need to learn a little bit about it. She sounds like a drab, to be honest yeah. with you. <laughs> yeah. um, Queen Victoria herself described makeup as impolite. It's not polite to wear makeup. So she could, you could only imagine what um, she must have been a happy camper. I'll show you a picture on Patreon. Okay. Well, um, I will say, Queen Victoria, our fucks are gone, so. <laughs> right. You can use some contouring. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, but in the United States, red lipstick took a whole new meeting during the rise of the women's suffrage movement. Yes. Pretty, it's pretty impressive. Yes. Um, they embraced red, bright red lipstick as a symbol of feminine resistance. They were taking their decisions into their own hands, whether it be the color of the, their lips or the right to vote. Mm -hmm. Red lipstick popularity exploded and grew even faster after the popular swizzle stick design that was introduced in 1933. I had no Ooh. idea. I just, I always assumed that that was just part of it. Yeah, that seems like, I mean, well, well okay, 99 years ago, it seems like it would have been around a lot longer than that. I know. They must like, have had it in like a little tray with a little paintbrush. And yeah, yeah. Or like if the ones that were a little bit thicker, I'm imagining with like Queen Elizabeth, like you're kind of like, you. Pro they probably didn't use her finger, you're right. But like maybe like a little spoon or something where it just... A shovel. Kinda, <laughs> where it just kind of like caked on. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool though. That was a brilliant invention. Yeah, of course. I wonder if that was trademarked and who did that? I wonder who invented that. I didn't Sounds like another up. crime and cosmetic segment. Yes, I'll do that next time. Okay, so uh, <laughs> cosmetics became one of the largest industries in the U.S., but not everyone loved lipstick. Adolf Hitler hated it. Of course he did. Of course, yeah. He banned it because he felt that lipstick made the Aryan women impure. Mm. So the Allies took advantage of Hitler's disgust and made uh, red lipstick a symbol of feminine power in the war effort. Yes, it was. And I, so the last several years, like every time, I think it, I want to say it's in November, I could be wrong, mm -hmm. where I have, I have a, like, this little meme, it's got the red lips on it, whatever, and it has a little description about the reason why we wear red lipstick, and it was for supporting the women who were, you know, yeah, working while their men were fighting, and yes. basically it was a big F you to Adolf Hitler. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that old poster, uh, Rosie the Riveter? Like, that's one of her trademarks, her red lips. I reenacted that, <gasps> Rosie the Riveter. I've got a picture of me. So we went to this, we were in upstate New York, mm -hmm. and we went to a winery. I guess like a, it was a winery, brewery, and a distillery. That's like our Disney. <laughs> right? <laughs> but in the brewery, they had, it was, a, it was like a war museum, too. They had all kinds of things from like 
World War II. It was all up on the wall, and they had Rosie the Riveteer on there. Mm-hmm. And I have a picture of me, which I'll post to the Patreon, going like this, like underneath mm-hmm. Rosie. I was kind of like reenacting it. It was great. That's, uh, you know, I think um, the girl that modeled for that poster, there's a documentary with yes, that. Yes, there is. Yes. She passed away not that long ago because I remember right. I remember hearing something in the news about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. That, that was a pretty powerful image for women to see. Yes. You know? Very much so. So companies introduced brand new wartime shades like Fighting Red, mm-hmm. Victory Red, and Montezuma Red mm-hmm. designed by Elizabeth Arden in reference to the U.S. Marine Corps song, which became part of the official uniform in the U.S. Corps Women Reserve. Yes. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Her lipstick From became the part of the uniform. Of <laughs> yes. Yep. Yeah. My brother was a Marine. So. <laughs> Love you, Joshua. I had no idea. Well, Elizabeth Arden, there's a picture of her mm-hmm. walking down the street, handing out red lipstick. Really? Yeah. Like to during the World War workers. During World War II? Mm-hmm. Oh, look at that. I had no idea. Oh. That's That's pretty freaking cool. I know. I'm getting chills just thinking about it. It's pretty cool. So American factories who employed women during during the war were required to keep lipstick in their dressing room, uh, allowing women to retain a sense of femininity and a continuity during the uncertain time. Sure. It's pretty easy that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, In England, where a variety of consumer goods were rationed, Winston Churchill left lipstick untouched. He would not ration this. He recognized cosmetics as being an essential part of maintaining a feeling of normalcy during, well, amongst British women during the war. I know. Love that. Me too. The Ministry of Supply stated cosmetics are as essential to a woman as tobacco is to a man. Why? Because women didn't smoke then? I mean, come on. That is a little dated. It is dated. It is dated. It gives you... I get it. Yeah, it gives you a feeling about what was going on at the time. Yeah, yeah. The Allies won the war, and Red Lipstick continues this journey through the 21st century and continues to be an indispensable part of the cosmetic arsenal yes it does Mm -hmm. and a lipstick is an integral part to the story that i'm gonna talk about yes so are you ready for Mm -hmm. this week's crime and cosmetics segment (laughs) all right take yourself back to last week where were we last week we were in chicago Mm -hmm. Mm a little later Al Capone's no longer there, but corruption is still prevalent. Mm-hmm. Mid 1940, and enter in the Lipstick Killer. The Lipstick Killer was an alleged serial killer and one-time abductor, active in Chicago during the mid to late 1940s. Police had little to no evidence to go off of. They had no suspects whatsoever. However, a serial burglar who was caught in the act confessed to the murders. Later, recanted on the grounds that he was coerced by police. So this is, that's a quick snippet, right? Yeah. So let's set the stage a little bit. Let's talk about the victims. Okay. Victim one, discovered June 4th, 1945. A 43-year-old female was found with her throat cut and stabbed several times in her apartment. She was identified as Josephine Ross. Her head was reportedly wrapped in clothing. Ross had a red skirt around her head held in place with a scarf. Upon interviewing neighbors, two of them recalled a man with wavy hair 20s to 30s that was on the fire escape around the same time that Josephine was thought to have been killed. Mm-hmm. An interview of the daughter revealed that Ross was engaged to a gentleman called Oscar Nordmark, but Ross also had a boyfriend named Chester Rice. They dated on and off for years and years and years. So Oscar Nordmark, the fiance, was interviewed and revealed that he was at work at the time. He was a bricklayer. Mm-hmm. The police were able to confirm that he had a very solid alibi for this. Mm. During Nordmark's interview, he they asked him, hey, do you know about this Chester Rice guy? And he's like, oh, yeah, I know about him. Josephine Ross and this Chester Rice guy, they had a relationship like on and off for years, right? Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, I mean, I think I would too. I would tell my fiance about this other guy that just existed in my past. So Rice, when he was interviewed, first of all, Oscar said it would not put put it past me, Chester Rice, to do something like this to her. Wow. Oscar Nordmark, he was like devastated, obviously, right? He was going to spend his life with this woman. Mm-hmm. So during Rice's interview, he said that he and Josephine Ross were childhood sweethearts, and he described it as a very stormy romance. One of those relationships, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Rice's alibi also confirmed where he was at a bar 
with about 10 witnesses seeing him there to include the bartender, Winky. Oh, his name was Winky? The bartender's name was Winky. <laughs> I love that name. I'm going to name my, my new cat that, Winky. I love it. I love it. It's a great cat name. It is. Or a squirrel or Winky. <laughs> Fast forward about six months. December 10th, 1945, victim number two. A 33-year-old Francis Brown, which ironically is also my father and my brother's name. Are you kidding? Crime chat link. <laughs> Francis, of course, male is with an I-S. Francis with, with an E-S is female. You know, I never knew that. Yeah. Wow. For the most part, yeah. So Francis, female Brown was found with a gunshot wound to the head and a knife in her neck. Mm. It was believed the stabbing was actually made post-mortem, so after she was already dead. On the wall of Brown's apartment was a note written in her red lipstick that said, quote, For heaven's sake, catch me before I kill more. I cannot control myself, end quote. This led to the perpetrator being nicknamed the Lipstick Killer by the media. Can I ask you a question? What shade was the lipstick? It was red. It was red. Okay. All right. At least he's, you know, red's good. Well, I mean, it was in the 40s, right? So we were still, Mm -hmm. it was World War II era. So it was red lipstick, man. True. Okay. This was also during a time where crime scene weren't really as controlled. They allowed the press to come in with them. So the press mm. sees this, like the newspaper journalists mm-hmm. see this, and they see the writing on the wall, and then they just start going nuts, right? There were several similarities between the first and the second victim to include, like, the clothing wrapped around the head kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And they thought it could have been the same suspect. They weren't sure. Potentially a serial killer. So victim number three was six years old. Just a few weeks after the Brown murder, on January 7th, 1946, Suzanne Degnan was abducted from her second floor window of her family's apartment. Evidence showed that Suzanne was taken into the laundry room of a basement of an an apartment complex very close by, wherein Uh she was strangled and then dismembered somewhere between 1230 and 1 o'clock in the morning. Oh my god. Horrible. Absolutely Completely different MO than the first two, right? Yeah. Her body parts were found in sewer drains surrounding the apartment complex for weeks after her abduction. A ransom note for her parents, like her parents went to go up and get her for breakfast that morning, didn't find her, but found this ransom note demanding $20,000 in five and $10 bills. And they were to not contact the police or the FBI. Of course they did. Mm -hmm. The older sister of Suzanne said, quote, I was old enough to know everything that happened and remember the looks on my parents' faces, end quote. As you can imagine, this case was a media frenzy. We talked a little bit about the media during that era, right? But at Mm -hmm. this point, they were all over crime scenes. Like they were there when wherever police went, right? And originally, Chicago Police Department did not link this child victim to the first two adult female victims. The Chicago Tribune labeled the Suzanne Degnan, the six-year-old homicide, as one of the most atrocious American murders since the Loeb Leopold case. You may be asking, what's the Loeb Leopold case? So crime chat fact. Here we go. Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb, L-O-E-B, not sure if I'm saying that right, were teenagers living in a very wealthy Chicago suburb and students at the University of Chicago who, in May of 1924, kidnapped and murdered 14-year-old Bobby Franks in Chicago. They committed the murder, characterized at the time as, quote, the crime of the century, end quote, as a demonstration of their obsensible intellectual superiority, which they believed enabled and entitled them to carry out the perfect crime without any consequences. Like, rich people doing things that think they can just get away with it so that was like 20 years before then so this so so they're saying this suzanne degnan case is like one of the most atrocious things that they have seen in since this leopold and Loeb case yeah so sad it is uh so in february 1946 suzanne's arms were found by sewer workers about a half a mile from her home after her previously discovered remains had already been buried. So wait a minute, they were still <laughs> finding her body. I parts. was going to say, so did they locate her entire body eventually, or I think uh, so. I think the arms were like with the last thing that they were able to find. Oh my god! But they were found about a month later, and then within the next few months, about 370 suspects were questioned and then cleared. And by this time, the press was taking an increasingly critical tone as to how the police were handling the actual overall investigation. And it wasn't until basically a child was killed that there was any kind of publicity over Mm -hmm. it, unfortunately. So FBI forensic psychologist, I love forensic psychology, John Douglas studied this case and wrote a book about many of the facts surrounding the murders and how they would be perceived today, like relating it to today's psychology, Mm -hmm. right? 
He said, quote, the public was both cynical and skeptical about authorities' abilities to solve problems, and the authorities felt a need to produce solutions, whether they had the withdrawal or not. When Susan Degnan was murdered less than three weeks after Francis Brown, everything changed. There's nothing more horrible in the collective consciousness than the murder of a child. And the details of this particular murder were so monstrous that the public and the media demanded a swift solution and certain justice. And you'll see that kind of throughout the case, mm -hmm. right? So he goes on to say, quote, the police were now under intense pressure to come up with a suspect. In response, they launched the greatest manhunt in the city's history, involving thousands of leads, nearly a thousand interviews, hundreds of polygraphs, and countless handwriting sample comparisons, end quote. Handwriting sample comparisons, one, because of the lipstick writing on the wall for the Francis Brown case, and then two, the ransom mm -hmm. that was left for Suzanne Degnan, right? So after Suzanne Degnan's disappearance, the Degnan residents received several phone calls to include a local boy named Theodore Campbell. Campbell stated another local teenager, Vincent Costello, killed Suzanne and told Campbell to make the phone calls to the parents. Costello, who lived just a few blocks from the Degnans, had been convicted of armed robbery at the age of 16 and sent to reform school. Costello was arrested but later cleared after polygraph of both Campbell and Costello revealed that neither boy actually had knowledges of the murder. They were just calling the parents, I guess, to harass them. But this was like one of the major leads that they had at the time. Mm -hmm. The man questionably, and I say questionably because you'll see why, that was actually convicted of being the lipstick killer was arrested in July of 1946. So about six months after Suzanne Degnan, while he was attempting a robbery. Hmm. I don't know. It, it, I mean, is it normal for a serial killer to be a, a burglar? It depends on their previous, like, yeah. ammo. It, it's possible for it to build mm -hmm. if when they go in to conduct a robbery or burglary, they are violent. Yeah. However, the gentleman I'm going to talk about was not a violent man. Oh, okay. So enter in 17-year-old William, or Bill, Herons. Born in Evanston, Illinois, 1928, he was raised in the suburbs of Chicago during the Great Depression. He had a fairly normal upbringing, then, and I put that in quotes because there were some other oddities, but could have been normal for this time frame. Mm -hmm. His family was poor. And imagine during the Great Depression, a lot of families were poor, right? Yeah. His parents struggled, and what money his father actually made was spent on socializing with his friends. He went to those speakeasies and spoke easy oh. and tried to get a lot of the alcohol oh. that was prohib prohibited at the time. His mother, who worked in a bakery, often had to leave him and his siblings with a sitter, so there was not a whole lot of like parental oversight. Mm -hmm. And to escape his parents' frequent arguing, Bill often left the house and eventually started stealing and burglarizing. By the age of 13, Bill was arrested for being in possession of a stolen revolver wherein he confessed to multiple burglaries. Like, he would keep them, the things that he stole, he would keep them and then try to resell them. Oh, he's 13. I know. He was trying to literally work for his next meal. This is so sad. Pretty much. So sad. You'll see maybe a little things. You may change your mind a little oh. bit There could of the evidence and stuff that was held against him. But hold on to that. Be objective. Okay. Right. Okay. He was sent to the school for wayward boys after his first arrest, which actually turned out, crime chat fun fact, mm -hmm. to be the same place Charles Manson would go years later wow we sh so the waywood board boys i've heard that school before so that school has been open for a while long time we yep. should probably do a, a crime chat on that Ooh, school yeah the criminals who have gone there to wayward criminals yeah yes okay. yes so after he was released, Bill was arrested again for burglary. He was sent to a prep school as a sentence. So he was getting, you know, he's in his mid to later, you know, teens, becoming a, a young adult. So they're like, well, let's, let's send you to this prep school instead. He excelled. He did freaking phenomenal. He did so well that he actually bypassed his senior year of high school and graduated early in 1945. Wow. Okay. He did. He was like, I am acing this shit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he enrolled in the University of Chicago's electrical engineering program. Shout out to my son. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, not University of Chicago. Classic, but he's an electrical engineer. <laughs> However, due to costs, he did have to drop to part-time after his first year. Like his first year, he rocked it, right? He mm -hmm. was... 
But mom and dad were like, we really can't afford for you to keep going to school. Um, So he began to work at night. He began to burglarize again for money. By his second year, his grades also began to slip because he was spending a lot less time studying. And he also started dating. Mm. So while he was being apprehended, Bill said he was knocked unconscious by several hits to the head. One of which was a flower pot that was dropped on his head like a big clay flower pot. He drifted in and out of consciousness during police interviews and claimed he was questioned for six days straight. He was beaten. He was starved. During his interrogations, he was given sodium pentothal, which is the truth serum. I am so confused right now. This sounds, this sounds, (laughs) Oh my! Horrible. Oh my God! Okay. This so he's given kid. this. Wow. Yeah, he was given the true serum without a warrant or without consent. Now keep in mind, he did not request a lawyer, nor was one given to him. This was before Miranda. Mm-hmm. This was Miranda didn't come into play until I think 1963. So this was before it was the law to let to read people their rights. Right. So he knew he could have asked for one, but he didn't. Mm. He just he just didn't say anything. And I'll get into that a little bit. <sighs> However, he was convicted and locked up for 63 years, making inmate C-06103 the longest serving prisoner in Illinois history. And he died in prison at the age of 83 in 2012. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay. So but I don't understand what hard evidence the police have against Bill Parents. Like, what? Well, <laughs> let's find out after a word from our sponsor. Okay. Hey Chatters, Chris here. I finally got the mic from Nat and Cat, and wanted to give a huge shout out to today's sponsors, The Suspicious Squad Shop. Plus let you in on some sweet deals happening at the store with a 15% discount code that I may or may not have acquired from your true crime host. But before we get to that, let me tell you a little bit about our sponsor. This shop is inspired by none other than the murder, mystery, makeup queen herself, Bailey Sarian. With some true crime fun to top it off. This store was created to support the Suspicious Squad LLC Facebook group, which is a group that encourages and motivates its members of murder, mystery, and makeup fans with a positive environment, where there's also monthly prizes and giveaways. And who don't like a good prize and giveaway? If you're into true crime, makeup, or just a positive atmosphere, be sure to check out the group in the awesome store. There is something for everyone, from your cozy fuzzy socks to love-inspired silverware. From your feet to how you eat, they got you covered. You can even find lingerie and handcuffs, which sadly, I was told, are sold separately. However, they can ship them together because they play well together. With plenty more to offer, don't miss out on the fun. Stop by, check it out at www.facebook.com forward slash the suspicious squad shop. And be sure to use that discount code crime chat. And we're back. So far, okay, we've talked about three horrible murders over the span of about a year and a half. With multiple interviews and suspects at hand, 17-year-old Bill Herons was arrested and convicted of being the lipstick killer. Mm. Police felt the pressure from the public and the press to find the person responsible, had questionable techniques in order to do so, mm-hmm. as we mentioned, upon like Bill's apprehension, right? Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned last week during the St. Valentine's Day Massacre episode, Chicago's public services were flooded with corruption. Mm-hmm. And this was still the case post the Chicago outfit and all that jazz in yeah. that area. In their eagerness to satisfy a very aroused public and ravenous press at the time, the Chicago Police and Cook County State's Attorney's Office went well beyond the approved norms mm-hmm. of a criminal investigation in the following weeks. Oh my God. In the process, they seriously jeopardized the likelihood of gaining Heron's conviction if the case ever came to trial by his apprehension, keeping him awake for six days, giving him a true serum, all that stuff, right? I am so confused right now because this is what, he's 17, what they put this poor Mm -hmm. kid, I would admit to anything. Right? I would be like, yeah, 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 I did it. Get me out of the situation. And he is a 17-year-old kid that has been surviving. He's He has conviction in himself because, and he never said a word during the interrogation. This is what we know. This is what we know. Just imagine how rough they were with him. So a top to bottom shakeup of the police department was ordered to improve neighborhood surveillance, criminal investigations, like, hey, you guys need to be more involved out into society, right? Mm -hmm. So unlike some vicious crimes that aroused attention and then like quickly faded in the press, the Suzanne Degnan atrocity would not go away. 
press kept going back to it. Every week there was a new lead. Like it, it kept going. So that meant also the pressure was on mm-hmm. to the police department because so she was killed in January, and Bill Herons wasn't arrested until July. So six months into it, the pressure that yeah. was given oh to the police God. department to find who killed this little six-year-old beautiful little girl. I've got pictures and stuff of her that I'll post. So, quick question. At this point, the police did connect her murder with the other two murders, the two other two girls, or at this point, it's still separate? I'm gonna get into it. Okay, that. okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I don't know how it's connected. The police officer in me sees absolute zero connection <laughs> other than the fact that it was in the same neighborhood. Uh-huh. That's it. Okay. That's I trust your instincts more than the Chicago police (laughs) at this point, so we're good. (laughs) So enter in John Douglas, that FBI forensic psychologist I talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. He actually interviewed Bill Herons while Bill was in prison and said, quote, I have spent my career helping to put away bad guys, kidnappers and killers, bombers and sexual predators. He actually worked on the Unabomber case, by the way. Oh, wow. And the worst of the worst. I've derived an enormous amount of satisfaction from that in his pursuit, right? But for that effort to have any meaning, our first allegiance must always be to find justice. Mm -hmm. And to approach justice, we must forsake the truth, whatever means necessary and whatever it takes. The American criminal justice process is an admirable one, and but it's also often copied. As we have noted, it's not a perfect one. Innocent people are convicted, mm-hmm. and the guilty ones evade the law and are, or are let go by whatever reasons. Mm. He says, quote, I weep for all of the victims. It is therefore incumbent upon us to have the humility to realize that we can and we must improve. Justice is often uncomfortable, but that doesn't mean that we should turn our heads away. And we talked about that in the posthumous part, and we talked about the fact that it's uncomfortable. But if we don't talk about it, that just means that we are turning our head right. to something that needs to be brought into yes. to the attention, right? And I like the way he articulated that. I think he... Oh, yes. Uh, John Douglas, love it. Yep. Okay. Yep. And he goes on to say, quote, and a perfect justice system is an ultimately unattainable goal. And it's true. Like, Mm -hmm. I I totally agree with that. But that in no way suggests that we shouldn't continually strive towards achieving it, end quote. And by saying all of this, after he interviewed Bill Herons, he believes that Bill was innocent. (sighs) So potentially wrongfully convicted as the lipstick killer. Let's talk about the evidence first against Bill Herons, okay? Okay. One was a a fingerprint. The FBI had nine points of identification of a fingerprint from a little left finger that was allegedly collected from Suzanne Degnan's ransom note. There was also a fingerprint that was left on Francis Brown's, a bloody fingerprint that was left at Francis Brown's crime scene as well. However, FBI standard, even at that time, was 12 points of identification, and there was only nine. Mm-hmm. So from this bloody smudge on the door jam at the Francis Brown murder, police claimed that the fingerprint matched that of Heron's. The found print looked like it had been rolled, a lot like a criminal print mm-hmm. taken after an arrest. And regular fingerprints found at crime scenes are not rolled. Yeah. Like, I'm so weird. Like, I'll do that sometimes. I'll like, like my glass. I'll be like, ooh, I'm going to roll my fingerprint and see what it looks right. like. Right. Yeah. And just to see. But normal fingerprints when you grab or grasp something Mm -hmm. they don't look like that no they're not a perfect role so there was i guess inquisition into the fact was that planted or not and as remember Mm -hmm. the press was also allowed to go into the crime scenes with police at the time they were not blocked off the killer could have been a reporter or planted it there just to make it um, right you know a media frenzy (sighs) so the print looked like it had been rolled much like criminal prints taken after arrest however the claim this print was herons came 12 days after the police investigator, Captain Emmett Evans, told the newspapers that Herons was cleared. Oh. At the time, remember, so he was arrested. Mm-hmm. He was interrogated for six days. Six days after that is when they're like, after the police captain was like, nope, he, we let him go after his six days of interrogation. We let him go. He's been cleared. Another six days later, they're like, yep, that's his fingerprint. Wow. Oh, so. questionable evidence Mm. maybe Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. okay so let's move on to the handwriting sample so the handwriting sample of the lipstick message that was left at francis brown's apartment 
was not definitively actually linked to Heron's handwriting, even though police claimed that his bloody fingerprint was left at the scene. Additional handwriting analysis of the impressions left also on the ransom note revealed hidden indentation writing. Mm -hmm. That's normal when you're using like a notepad of some sort, which reminds us of that crime chat fun fact throwback, right? Mm -hmm. The Jean-Baptiste Ramsey, Patsy Ramsey, and the notebook that was left. We talked about that case in December. Yeah, so I have a quick question. Mm -hmm. Do we know who the detectives or the investigators who were on this case mm-hmm. that came to this conclusion. Do we know who they are? Yeah. I mean, well, I, I don't mention them in yeah. here. They've, they've been since passed away. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they knew who they were. Yeah. So after this analysis, the FBI actually declared there was no indentation writing at all left on the ransom note. And most handwriting experts believe that Herons had zero link whatsoever to the note. In 1996, an FBI handwriting analysis guy, um, David Grimes, mm-hmm. said both the ransom note and the lipstick writing absolutely excluded Herons altogether. Are you kidding me? Oh, so 1996, my God. I mean, that was, what, 50 years later. He yes. was still alive. He was still in prison. But this FBI handwriting analysis expert said, nope, it wasn't him. Wow. And, and, and they... Science in itself, forensics in science in itself has come such a long way. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had handwriting experts at that time, but the scientific advancement and everything since then has, has ex- increased exponentially. So yeah. I would absolutely trust this guy. Yeah. You know, and saying that there was zero link to Bill Heron. Right. Yeah. And we learned a lot, like when we were going over the Ramsey note, you mentioned a couple of things that I didn't even think about, like the pressure of writing in the beginning as opposed to the end. Yep. A grammar would even change. And Mm -hmm. I I didn't know a lot. I do have pictures of the actual writing on the wall. I have pictures of the ransom note and stuff that I'm going to post on Patreon. Okay. So let's talk about the other suspects. There's four. I'm going to go over four of them. Okay. In addition to Bill who was actually the convicted killer, right? So first, a janitor was arrested as a suspect, grilled mercilessly. Now remember all that crap that happened to Bill. So this janitor was grilled mercilessly and tortured. What does that um, mean? The, I'm, the I'm afraid released. to ask. After I'll, I'll get into okay. that. <laughs> a Belgian immigrant, Hector Verberg, worked in the same apartment complex where Degnan lived. Originally stating, quote, this is the man by police. He was eventually released once they realized that the surgical precision and knowledge of the killer had to have had to have had at the time based mm-hmm. on Degnan's dismemberments. Yeah. They, it, it wouldn't have been this guy. Other evidence includes that the ransom note was likely written by someone with a dirty hand because it was like smudging and that kind of stuff. So remember heating at this time. It was January was mm. done by what? Coal. Coal, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So there was evidence, and this guy was the janitor. Janitors at this time for apartment complexes were responsible for the heating in the entire facility. So somebody who would use coal to help heat an apartment complex was also another reason that linked this guy Verberg to him. During the interrogation, Verberg, however, was abused to the point where his shoulder was dislocated. He denied any involvement and said this, quote, they hanged me up. They blindfolded me. I can't put up my arms. They're sore. They had handcuffs on me for hours and hours. They threw me in a cell and blindfolded. They handcuffed my hands behind my back and pulled me up on bars until my toes touched the floor. I know eat. I go to the hospital. Oh, I am sick anymore. And I would have confessed anything. End quote. Oh he sent God. this to the press as after he was released. And as an immigrant, Verberg could not write English well enough to the standards of the actual ransom note, right? He ended up suing the police department for $15,000. He received $5,000. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? No, I can't imagine. This. Oh, my God. Okay, so that's only the first one. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> the second major suspect in this case was someone by the name of S. Sherman. S. Sherman was embroidered on a handkerchief found near the Degnan murder. Now, I remember, too, the first two murders were kind of like, oh, you know, sad, let's investigate it. But when a child was murdered and dismembered, this is when, like, police went into action, right? So mm-hmm. this is the one that they're focusing on. So there was this handkerchief with or with the name S. Sherman embroidered on it, and that was found near the Degna murder. There were several blonde hairs found at the back of the apartment building, and then um, nearby that was a wire police believed that they could have... that the suspect used to strangle her. Near this wire, they found the handkerchief, which they thought could have been used also to gag her. Mm -hmm. So like, if she's screaming or whatever, like gag her, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of 
kind of thing. So once they found this handkerchief, a four-day manhunt ensued. They discovered a gentleman by the name of Sidney Sherman, S. Sherman, was recently discharged Marine who served in World War II and was living at the YMCA. When police went to question Sherman, he was gone. He vacated the residence. He left his job without getting his last paycheck. He picked up and just left without any warning. Mm -hmm. Four days later... Like during this manhunt, they found him in Toledo, Ohio. And his reasoning during his interrogation was that he eloped with his fiance. Mm-hmm. Which is why he left no trace. He was just like, I'm gone. Like, I just want to go get married. I'm pretty sure a fiance requires your last paycheck. It's <laughs> <laughs> possible. I'm sorry. <laughs> he denied the murder. He denied the handkerchief was his. He, and he passed the polygraph. Oh, that, so he was actually cleared. That freaking the- polygraph shit. <laughs> The real owner of the handkerchief ended up being a gentleman by the name of Seymour Sherman. Again, S. Sherman, <laughs> who had been verified to have been out of the country while Suzanne Degnan was murdered. He had no explanation, however, how his handkerchief ended up in Chicago. Mm. <laughs> huh. So it wasn't me. I, no, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. I'd be like Shaggy. It wasn't me. <laughs> That's right. So the third suspect to me is the most promising. Richard Russell Thomas was living in Phoenix when he was arrested for molesting one of his own daughters. He was in Chicago at the time, like confirmed at the time during Suzanne Degnan's murder as a self-identified drifter. During his interrogation for molesting his daughter, the 42-year-old Thomas confessed to killing Suzanne, but was released awaiting trial. A handwriting expert in Phoenix found, quote, great similarities between Thomas's known handwriting and the Degnan ransom note. Thomas was also a nurse, matching the profile of someone with medical or surgical experience. Thomas lived across town from the neighborhood like he lived in the South Side, Mm -hmm. which wasn't close by. However... He admittedly would frequent a car yard that was across the street from where Suzanne's arms were later found. The day that the Thomas development broke in Phoenix, Bill Herons was arrested and Thomas would recant his confession. However, Thomas was a very strong suspect at the time, given a variety of potential coincidences, right? So I'm going to go over a couple. Thomas previously had been convicted of attempted extortion with a ransom note that threatened a kidnapping of a little girl. Oh. As previously noted, handwriting experts at the time said that Thomas's ransom note from his previous conviction of extortion bears similarity in regard to both wording and the structures of the letters themselves as related to the Dagnan ransom note. Thomas was in Chicago at the time, right? He confessed while he was waiting sentencing for molesting his daughter, even though he did recant. He was a nurse, and was known to masquerade around as a surgeon. He often boasted to his friends that he was a doctor, and he was known to steal surgical supplies. Police department in Chicago previously developed a profile of the Degnan killer as having surgical skills. Yeah. Right. He frequented car agency near the Degnan residence, and then, of course, parts of Suzanne's body were found in a sewer across the street. And like Herons, he was a known burglar. Mm -hmm. Thomas died in prison in Arizona in 1974, and most of the evidence surrounding Mm -hmm. this was lost or damaged over the years. Are you kidding? So Bill Herons, in his appeals and his processes of trying to get out of prison, would say that this other the records were gone. There was like they were damaged or lost or destroyed because he was convicted on molesting his child, and he died in prison. When he died, they like got rid of all the records. So the last suspect, number four, George Hodel. Does that name sound familiar? Oh, God, does it ever. I I took a deep dive on him one time. And that's not sexual. I'm not saying that. Oh, God, no. (laughs) No, So (laughs) with George Hodel, for those chatters out there that don't know, he was investigated for the murder of Elizabeth Short, a.k.a. the Black Dahlia. Uh-huh. His son, Steve, was an LAPD detective and wrote a book about his father that actually linked him to not only Black Dahlia, but also the Zodiac killings. Uh-huh. And George Hodel, he was also a physician. I don't. That was just a theory. It wasn't necessarily like a name suspect at the time. There's just been theories about him. Yeah. So George Hodel, I mean, you've already done a deep dive into him. He's a crime mm-hmm. chat in itself. Like, he is oh a God. freaking weird dude. We're going to do that. Okay. We- we are going to do that because I did take a deep dive and I did. I just went down a rabbit hole. And he he really does have a very strong case he does. against his father. 
And when you're saying this to me, when you're going through the story, yeah, think about it. When you dismember a body, there needs to be a level of just meticulous mental capacity to do it, to kind of go through the system because it's yeah. not easy to do. Not that I would know. To not realize that you're dissecting a human being. Right. Yeah. Because a lot, I think a lot, not that I would know or thought about it, but I'm just <laughs> assuming when you dissect a body, there's a lot of blood. Yeah. There's a lot of things that you don't expect. I mean, so, I mean, us. even like post, so I've been to, I can't tell you how many autopsies I've been to. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and they do the whole Y incision and dissection and everything. And at that time, a lot of the blood has settled. But it being a fresh body mm-hmm. where it, it settles at the bottom, like if you're, and that's where a lot of times I can see if like bodies have been moved. If they've been set mm-hmm. in one position, all the blood settles. It looks like bruising on the body. Yeah. But if they're found in a different position, that's not equal. Liver mortis, I think. Liver mortis. I, I think yeah. that's the thing. That's the thing that's hard for me to focus on the initial guy that they accused of this herons because yeah. a burg a simple a simple burglar who is just surviving in that time doesn't seem the type of guy because I mean burglars are in, they're out, they yeah. they don't want any on their hands you dismember you're getting stuff on your hands and you have to meticulously clean he did carry a knife with him for all the burglaries that he did but Mm -hmm. again as i mentioned he wasn't a violent man he would use them to pry things open Mm -hmm. so not necessarily to like you know a surgical probably yeah right yeah now i will tell you i came across an interview of herons Mm -hmm. on youtube that you guys can find i'll list it in the resources and stuff for this cool it was around 2000 2001 he was in prison and there was some really super interesting things that he said when he was arrested for burglarizing he never imagined he would actually be questioned about three unsolved murders right yeah. Chicago police testified that he did not confess. He never confessed. He never said anything during his six-day interrogation. But they did testify the fact they had the fingerprints and the handwriting evidence. He was aware that the fingerprint found on the Brown crime scene occurred, what he said, quote-unquote, much later mm-hmm. than from the body was found. Remember, it was those 12 days. Mm-hmm. He was interrogated for six days. The police chief said he was cleared. Six days later, nope, he's arrested because we found this bloody fingerprint at the crime scene. Right. He, knew, he was well aware that it was money days later. So the original handwriting evaluation was completed by the FBI. They collected the handwriting evaluation from the ransom note and from the, the lipstick. They sent it to the FBI. The FBI expert said there's no similarities between Bill Herons and the evidence. Prosecution then hired their own handwriting expert who said they were one in the same, that it was the same person. There were even other handwriting experts hired by local newspapers who revealed at even at this time there was zero similarities between the known handwriting samples of Heron and then the lipstick writing or the ransom note. Yeah. Herons felt that he was a, he was in just in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was burglarizing in the same neighborhood as all three murders. The prosecution offered him a plea bargain to plead guilty for all three murders in exchange for life in prison. They offered this to him during his interrogation while he was under the true serum being you know deprived Mm -hmm. of food sleep everything 17 17 years old he said no yeah his second offer came after he was appointed a public defense counsel public defender was like just take it he's like no I'm not going to take it. The Chicago Tribune published an article before his trial stating that Herons had confessed, which was not true. He never confessed to anything. Mm-hmm. And later, that the Chicago Tribune actually said that they made the story up. <gasps> so, no. So feeling hopeless and suicidal at the time, 17 years old, he was continuously harassed by newspapers at from the beginning all the way until after the actual trial or after his sentencing. Because of this, he felt that he was, quote, over the barrel. I had never heard this meaning before. I had to look it up. Do you know what it means? I don't know. No. Basically, over the barrel means he was at the mercy of others or in a helpless position. Mm. Everyone was convinced that he confessed based on that article. And he felt he would not get a fair trial. So eventually he took the plea. He said, I did it. Wow. Oh, my God. Then he recanted. While he was incarcerated in the 1950s, he was interviewed by a lady named Lucy Freeman, who wrote a book called, quote, Before I Kill More, end quote, which is part of that message that was written in lipstick on the wall, right? In her book, she said that Heron suffered from a split personality and an alter ego, which he felt came from the behavior that was demonstrated while he was under the influence of the true serum Uh up until this interview nobody else had investigated this so he was it was welcomed for him to talk to somebody about it at least somebody was going to look into it right Uh and then so heron said quote 
if she didn't write it, somebody else would. Basically, from his perspective, either talk to them about it or they're just going to make it up. Wow. So Heron stated he felt disappointed after he actually read the book. There was a good thing. Freeman was able to uncover the gun that was used in the Brown murder. So Francis Brown was shot and then the knife was found in her neck, right? Mm -hmm. The weapon that was found for that murder was actually linked to a shooting that happened prior to this crime. And the police had that weapon in custody. So Heron's kept a copy as a reference, although he didn't actually get to read it until almost 20 years later because the warden would not let him have a copy. What a bastard. Right? What a bastard. Oh, my God. But he kept it. I mean, he kept it in his possession. He said he would use it as like a reference and stuff. So in 1966, he was given the benefit of what's called the Parole Act at the time. And he was actually discharged and paroled from the Degnan murder, from the six-year-old's murder. However, when the law changed in 1973, he faced the parole board every year since then. Now, even though he was paroled or discharged or, you know... and from any wrongdoing for the Degna murders, he was still convicted of the other two. Mm-hmm. Up until his death from 1973, he faced a parole board every single year and claimed his innocence every single year. The parole board was supposed to follow the laws written out in the Parole Act from the time of the actual crime, not the time that the law changed. In their report, they considered him to be a, quote, good parole risk, meaning that he was reformed. We could let him out and he would be fine. However, they said they would never release him because we don't want people to to do the things that you're been convicted of. We're not going to let you out. And this is called a general deterrence. The parole board would say a lesser sentence would depreciate the seriousness of the crime and promote disrespect for the law. Wow. And that's why I mentioned there was a tie to the posthumous pardons. This man should be posthumously pardoned. Yes. Yeah. He did receive support from his brother, who actually never believed that he committed the murders in the first place. Mm -hmm. His parents divorced shortly after the conviction because it just like like kind of tore his family apart. And the only remaining family members he had left during the time of his interview that I found were some nieces and nephews. His parents and his brother had both passed away. All passed away. Now, at a parole hearing in 1991, then Assistant Secretary Attorney Thomas E. Pack scoffed at Heron's claims of innocence, saying, quote, This is a man who cut a helpless little girl into six pieces and decapitated her, who murdered two women in their homes and remained with their bodies bathing them, end quote. Epac also said at the at one of the parole hearings, quote, before Stephen King ever thought of any of these kinds of acts, William Herons was doing them, end quote. Epac sounds like a douchebag. Right? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm like, oh, wow. That is like, that's fucking harsh. That, yeah. That is harsh. Mm. Here's another flip side. Suzanne Degnan's younger brother, Jim, said to have researched the case while he was well into his 20s. After Herons began claiming that he was actually innocent. So Jim examined some of the evidence and speak, spoke with some authorities and a retired judge. And he said he was satisfied that Herons was guilty. He said Herons supporters had decades to prove his innocent, but never could. And he was quoted saying, I always waited for the other shoe to drop and it never did, end quote. So the family still believes, or at least the family of Susan Degnan still believes that Bill Herons was responsible. Here's another quote. There was no deathbed confession. He always said he was innocent. This came from Dolores Kennedy, an intern coordinator at the Center of Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University who wrote a book about Herons. And actually became a close friend, became his power of attorney to make his medical decisions. And she said, quote, I've known Bill for 27 years. There was never an instance where he indicated he had any guilt in any of those murders, end quote. Wow. Herons was convinced the truth would eventually come out, but he was convinced it wouldn't be until after he died. He said, quote, they would realize they made a mistake after I'm dead, end quote. Oh, my God. And that is... My story of the supposed lipstick killer of this crime and cosmetics segment. <laughs> oh my God. I It's crazy. It is like I tried to not go into too many rabbit holes or so many rabbit holes to go down in this story because it's got you've got other suspects, you know, you've got the police that have just been like, well, you know, we're not going to let him out. Or the, you know, the parole board's like, I'm not going to let him out because then other, we don't want to give the wrong impression to the public that it's okay to commit these crimes. Yeah. So basically you're keeping him incarcerated for a crime he probably didn't commit Mm -hmm. for deterrence. Well, I mean, this is, this is an innocent man's life. Like he probably barely lost his virginity. Yeah. (laughs) You know, before he went into prison. I know, but 
I mean, this is also the mid-1940s when the first right. killing happens. So this literally is like right after Al Capone. Mm -hmm. This is... On, people were still on the force or, you know, like, I mean, at that point you were serving, what, 20, 30 years on the force. So you, sure, yeah. you were still on the force. You could remember Capone and this situation. So mm -hmm. to think that, one, the cops, first of all, they sound like this is terrible. And then, two, his public defender, his attorney, yeah. what's to say that he wasn't working for the cops? Right. Yeah. Like, let's get this done. I, we want this off out of the media. We want to we want to get an attaboy that we did it, that we, we solved this case and let's move on. Exactly. That's exactly what they wanted. Because, and again, specifically with Suzanne Degman's murder, mm -hmm. there's nothing that linked it to the first two murders, to Josephine Ross or to Francis Brown. There's like right. no, nothing. There's yeah. not even handwriting samples that are similar from the ransom notes, the second one. Now, the first two, I can see that they would kind of be linked, right? You've got some yeah. of the same MO and stuff that's behind it. It's also against women. Adult women. Right. Like, there's yes. a big, that's a big gap. It, to, that's a huge jump from going from, like, murdering yeah. adults to murdering. Dismembering. Like, that's dis, it, it, Murdering and dismembering. Dismembering fucks oh, me up. This poor baby. She was, she was adorable. Aww. I'll show pictures. She was so cute. I'll show pictures of all the victims, um, of the lipstick writing on the wall, of the ransom note. I've, I'll put all that stuff on Patreon. So let's face it. This guy has never been caught. I don't think so. I, and honestly, just based on some of the, the information, I think it was the Richard Thomas guy. Mm -hmm. Thomas was the number three. He was the one that confessed to it. And he was the one that was arrested and sentenced to molesting his own daughter. Okay. He had left other notes saying that he was going to kidnap kids and so obviously he had like this thing for kids and I mean yeah. if he even confessed to it and then right at that same time when all this information came out about Thomas by the time Phoenix Police Department had relayed that to Chicago Bill Herons was arrested and so Thomas was like oh no no it wasn't me I didn't do it that motherfucker ended up dying in prison anyways so fucking wow holy crap cat this was good it's a crazy story like i started trying to find like another crime wow. and cosmetics thing and i'm like lipstick killer right perfect you know what i did not realize the more i researched into it there's been so many books written about it there was um on uh, investigation discovery that Mm -hmm. on their tv show a crime to remember did a segment on it true tv they did mm -hmm. a segment on it our friends over at crime junkie podcast mm -hmm. did a segment on it so it's been out there and i'm just like i've never even heard of this guy until i was like you know trying to research something else to do for crime and cosmetics yeah and this it, is amazing it's, and this has there's so many things you went over here, especially with the Chicago corruption mm -hmm. and also before the Miranda right, what what that looked like for right? people getting questions. Yes. Oh, my God. And coercion and part of the reason for Miranda to come out was because police were using tactics for coercing right. people to false confessions. And that was a huge time frame for false confessions as well. And, mm. I mean, even that Belgian guy the janitor was like if i couldn't take anymore like i would have admitted to anything at this point you uh -huh. know he had his shoulder like dislocated he was oh my god and that was only two days bill was six days of just constant he ha oh the other thing i didn't mention too i found that he had a spinal tap for what why just because just to put him under some sort of torture he had a spinal tap that's great i've had four spinal taps okay but i've had local anesthetics where you don't feel that pain and that shit still hurts. Yeah. He didn't have any anesthetics. This You got a needle going into your fucking spine. It hurts. So they put him through all kinds of crazy things. That poor kid and he was 17. He was 17. He had his adult life mm -hmm. was spent yeah. in jail pleading for his innocence. Yes, rest in peace. I believe you too. Rest in peace, Bill. I believe you. I mean, now I feel for the families. Because victims, mm -hmm. you know, the families of these yeah. of these murder victims mm -hmm. suffer. Mm -hmm. And I've I've talked to people. I've talked to families of murder victims. I mean, I'm sure you've had mm -hmm. some sort of association with that too, where you just like 
I feel for you and I'm so sorry. No. But also on the other side of it, you can't convict the wrong person. And 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 as John Douglas said, we we yeah. do not have a perfect justice system. We should always strive for a perfect justice system, but because we're humans involved in it, we're going to make mistakes and shit's going to happen. But there's also reasons why there's something like the Innocence Project. And, I mean, we just talked about mm-hmm. um, a couple episodes ago, right. we talked about genetic genealogy and how that yeah. that has cleared people in the past. There's reasons for these other things to help those who have been wrongfully convicted. And I, I mean, Chatters, I don't know. What do you think? Chatters. What do you think, Chatters? Do you think Bill Herons is the lipstick killer? Is there somebody I think- out there? Who probably has since passed away because this was like 80 years ago. Right. No. Yeah. I mean, at this point, it's we're all just speculating. But Chatters, as, oh God, it just seems like I don't know why Chicago is a hot button. <laughs> because, I mean, Do it was going through Chicago? so. Yeah, it was going through so much. And it was such a Mecca. It is a Mecca. It is. City. Yeah. And, and it just, I feel like I would, we would be shocked at the amount of police officers that were guilty in killing people. Sure. Because they wanted to clean up their streets in, in some way. and they and But they were probably feeling the pressure from the mayor, from the public. Right. To, like, get your shit under control. Like, get your backyard under control, people. Right. Like, you know what I mean? It's like that dog that constantly barks in your neighborhood <laughs> where you just, like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> no, I, listen, I give zero fucks. Listen. Shut the fuck up. Stop. <laughs> shut up i mean i can imagine i mean i say that in a joking manner but i can imagine the pressure though would yeah. be like you need to get your shit under control yeah and and it was probably i mean it, it's a big city so it's very dangerous so they the police weren't safe but yet it also gave room for bad police and bad people to kind of join the force and you don't know mm-hmm. a lot of corruption was and it's still going on i mean there are cases that are not that long ago that are so interesting that yes Chicago, like I said, is a hot topic for this I mean, stuff. We've talked about it two weeks in a row. <laughs> Girl, we yes. used to do a crime chat Chicago. We've talked about that before, too, about doing just the shit that happens in Chicago. <laughs> yes. And maybe yeah. we need to be on location then. Well, you wanna? I yes. would love it. I, Chicago's one of my... Chatters, you want to see us on location? Let us know. <laughs> we'll be in Chicago. Yes. Oh, God, I would love to go to Chicago. Oh, my God. So fancy, so nice. Uh, so because we don't want to leave you hanging, you want more information about this crime chat, Cat has got plenty oh, of yeah. pictures references that you can check out af- on the after that crime chat yeah right? i'll link that interview that was done mm-hmm. i will say this is a, is a quick little like side note the interviewer mm-hmm. not very exciting mm-hmm. not the best interview i've ever seen it was very slow and very, like but i guess she was writing notes and like take you know and it was mm-hmm. just hard and it, but at least it was recorded you did get to see him and you did get to you and i felt just watching it that he was very authentic in his answers like i don't feel like he was hiding yeah. anything that was just a side note so if you want to see more don't forget mm-hmm. to follow crime chat with nat and cat just search it on any of your social media needs facebook instagram youtube twitter we are constantly going to post teasers for what we have coming up next yes and remember so that's crime chat with nat and cat yes crime chat with Nat and Kat. You can't forget it. Pretty easy. Yeah, it rhymes. So subscribe to our Patreon. You'll get bonus episodes behind the scenes, bloopers, and also check out some merch in the works. And let me tell you something. Our bloopers are going to be legendary because at this point, Chatters, we give zero fucks. <laughs> zero fucks. We've got so many bloopers <laughs> that are out there. Oh, my God. We should just do the zero fucks bloopers. Yes. And <laughs> Natalie is running with our next episode. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what it's about. I gave you a hint because I don't. uh, Okay. So, yeah, I'm going to pull the same thing you pulled on me this episode. (laughs) Okay. uh, My assignment, Chatters, is to research the Mm -hmm. difference between parkways, highways, driveways, (laughs) and expressways. I love it. That's all I know. That's all I'm going to do. And you're in for a surprise just as much as I am next week. And I can't wait. I can't fucking wait. (laughs) Yes. That's good. That is going to be a good chat. Okay. Yes, it is. All right, guys. Well, we will see you guys on the next Crime Chat. Yes. Bye, Chatter. Bye, Bye Chatter.